0: I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories.
1: Listener discretion is advised.
0: Happy New Year!
1: On the morning of August 22nd, 1985... 35-year-old Dr. Helena Greenwood was at her home in Del Mar, California. Del Mar is a town in San Diego County. Helena was born in Hampshire, England. Her mother, Marguerite, was a geologist and her father, Sidney, was a notable artist. He eventually became the head of the Southampton College of Arts and he attained the title of Fellow Royal Society of Art. Helena was their only child. She was a bright and well-behaved girl. In high school, she met Roger Franklin, and they started dating. They eventually got married. Roger became a landscape architect. Helena became interested in the biotech field. When she was 26, she got her PhD in chemical pathology from the University of London. In 1977, the couple immigrated to the United States, where there were many opportunities for Helena. But first, they spent a year exploring the country.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: Then they settled in the upper class town of Atherton, California, in Silicon Valley. How got a job with the biotech company, Siva Company, in nearby Palo Alto. Helena was unique within the company because she understood both the science aspects of the company and the marketing side. Many people only understood one of them. So it only made sense to the company to make her the head of international marketing. By 1984, Helena and Richard moved over 460 miles south to Del Mar, California. Helena got a new job as vice president of marketing with a biomedical research lab, GenProbe. The company was working out ways to diagnose diseases through DNA. On the morning of August 22nd, 1985, 35-year-old Helena did not come to work. Her co-workers thought that this was odd because she was prompt and reliable. Also, she had an important meeting that morning and definitely would have been on time for that. So one of her co-workers called her husband, Roger, at work. He went home and found something unusual. The front gate was locked from the inside. He looked over the fence, and in the front yard of their home, he saw his wife's dead body. Roger then did something unusual. He called his wife's place of employment, Genprobe, instead of the police. He called the police second. Helena had been strangled to death. There were no signs of sexual assault. The police thought that the crime scene was odd because it looked like it had been staged. The items in her purse were strewn about, but none of her cards, keys, or money were stolen. One thing that the police noted was that Helena put up one hell of a fight before she was killed. Two of her fingernails were torn off and found at the crime scene. The police believe that the killer hid in some bushes and attacked her as she left the house. The first suspect the police had was Helena's husband, Roger Franklin. After all, it was strange that he called her work instead of the police. He was also the last person to see her alive. However, by all accounts, Roger and Helena had a happy relationship. Also, Roger had an airtight alibi. Helena had been on the phone shortly before 9 o'clock. She lived just a few minutes' drive from her office and usually arrived on time. A few minutes before 9 a.m., his neighbor heard some screaming. So the police concluded she was killed just before 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., Roger was at work, which was a 40-minute drive from his own home. As for why he called Probe instead of the police first, he said he was just in shock. So Roger was eliminated as a suspect. It turned out that the police had another strong suspect.
0: Are you battery smart and fire smart? Many people aren't aware of the fire hazard associated with improper battery disposal. When a lithium battery enters the waste stream and becomes damaged, exposing the lithium inside to water or heat, it ignites. Please don't throw your lithium batteries into the garbage and definitely don't put them into your recycle bins. Do your part and a fire won't start. Visit swa.org lib for convenient drop-off locations and more information.
1: In the spring of 1984, Helena and Roger were living in Atherton. On April 7th, 1984, Helena was home alone. Roger was in Washington, D.C. on business. While she was sleeping, a man broke into their home. At gunpoint, he raped her and stole some money. Helena talked to the man and promised not to call the police. The man left without doing any further harm to her. Helena immediately called the police after he left. She also called a friend who took her to the hospital. At the hospital, she described her attacker to the police. Understandably, Helena refused to stay another night in her home. Her friend drove her back home so she could pick up some clothing. While she was gathering up some belongings, the friend wandered around outside and eventually made his way to the back porch. The back porch was attached to the kitchen. The police determined that the rapist had entered through the kitchen window. The friend noticed something odd on the ground a few feet from the kitchen window. It was a kettle. He asked Helena about it and she said that the kettle was supposed to be on the windowsill. They concluded that before the rapist climbed through the window, he removed the kettle and dropped it outside. They called the police and they collected the kettle. They managed to find three fingerprints on it. But no match the fingerprints were found. So the case went cold. One year later, a man in Belmont, California, named David Paul Frediani, was arrested after exposing himself to a 12-year-old girl. Frediani was a 30-year-old financial analyst with no criminal record. His fingerprints were taken. The police thought that Frediani matched the description of the man Helena said attacked her. Also, Belmont is about six miles from Atherton, so they compared his fingerprints to those found on the kettle. They were a match. The police interviewed Frediani, and he denied even being in the area where Helena was raped. So he was asked how did his fingerprints end up at the crime scene. He said something to the effect of, I was drunk when I did those things. He then asked for a lawyer and stopped talking to the police. He was charged with sexually assaulting Helena. There was a preliminary hearing and Helena testified. She said she couldn't identify Frediani as her attacker. But the police still had the fingerprints placing him at the crime scene so he was ordered to go to trial. Frediani was on bail while he awaited trial. Helena was killed three weeks before the trial was to take place. The police didn't think that this was a coincidence. They surmised that Frediani killed her so she wouldn't testify against him at his trial. The police questioned Frediani about Helena's murder. He claimed he had nothing to do with it. He said he wasn't even in that part of California when she was killed. He claimed he was hundreds of miles away in the San Francisco area. But the police still believed he had something to do with her murder. The problem was that there was no way to prove it. The killer didn't leave any fingerprints behind. They did find some blood under Helena's fingernails. But if you've listened to the first episode of our podcast, you know that DNA profiling was discovered in the United Kingdom around the same time that Helena was murdered. It wouldn't be used in a criminal investigation until two years later, in 1987. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems
1: If David Frediani did kill Helena to somehow stop the trial for sexual assault, he was mistaken. The charges against him proceeded. Since Helena couldn't testify, her testimony for the preliminary hearing was entered into evidence. But that wasn't the strongest evidence against Frediani. His fingerprints of the crime scene were much stronger evidence. Also, forensic experts determined that the fluid found on Helena's pillow was semen. They determined that the semen came from a man with type O blood who was a secretor. This was a match to Frediani. Just before his trial started, Frediani changed his plea to no contest. He was sentenced to six years in prison. After he went to prison, Helena's murder case was placed in storage and her case went cold. David Frediani ended up serving three years in prison. After he was released, he returned to his job as a financial analyst. Helena's widower, Roger, eventually remarried and moved back to the Bay Area. Tragically, he was diagnosed with cancer and died in July 1999. That same year, the police decided to reopen Helena's case. When the police reopened the case in 1999, something caught their attention. One of their biggest problems was that they couldn't place David Frediani near the crime scene. He said he was 500 miles away in San Francisco at the time of the murder. But the cold case investigators found a report that he was in a minor traffic accident a short distance from Helena's home just a week before the murder. This encouraged investigators, so they looked at the evidence. They had saved Helena's clothes and the tips of her fingernails. They found two spots of blood on her clothes and some blood under her fingernails. The problem was that they were all very small samples. So DNA experts use a process called polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. PCR amplifies small DNA samples to make them big enough for DNA comparison. The investigators were lucky, because if they had tried DNA testing before PCR was invented, they would not have been able to build a profile and the DNA would have been used up. If they had used all the blood, Helena's murder might have gone unresolved. But because of PCR, they were able to create a DNA profile. To no one's surprise, the DNA belonged to David Frediani. The odds that the blood belonged to someone else is 1 in 23 billion. In December 1999, 45-year-old David Frediani was arrested for first-degree murder. He went to trial in January 2001. The district attorney said that Freddie Audi killed Helena so that she couldn't testify against him at the sexual assault trial. So he traveled to the Del Mar area and stalked Helena and Roger. He learned their routine and knew that Roger left for work about an hour before Helena left for work. So on the morning of the murder, he watched Roger leave and then he hid in the bushes. When Helena left the house to go to work, He jumped her and strangled her to death. He then staged the scene to make it look like it was robbery gone wrong. The trial lasted just under two weeks. Then the jury deliberated for a day. They found David Frediani, guilty of murder. 1985 was a terrible year for Helena's father, Sidney Greenwood. In January 1985, months before his only daughter was murdered, his wife and Helena's mother, died from leukemia. In the early 2000s, Sidney developed prostate cancer. He said he wanted to live long enough to see justice for his daughter. He died the day after the verdict was reached at the age of 88. In March 2001, David Frediani was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Many people believe that Helena Greenwood helped solve her own murder in two ways. The first is that she was at the forefront of DNA research. She may have known that DNA would eventually be used to identify individuals. So aside from trying to fight off or attack her attacker to save her own life, she may have tried to get his DNA so it could be tested later. Also, the district attorney who prosecuted the case told forensic files that the work she and her company did with DNA helped put her killer away. At the time of this recording, 7 year old David Frediani is serving a sentence at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility in Cochrane, California. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.
0: We have a great show today, but first...